This podcast does not constitute financial or investment advice. It is for educational, general information and entertainment purposes only. Please consult with your own financial advisor before making any financial decisions. I remember when I took my first job, permanent job, my father said, you need to learn to live with 90% of what you earn, put 10% away all your life and you'll be fine. Learn to live with 90%, like that was the thing. No matter how much they'll give you and no matter what, they just learn that and save. So for an actuary, of course, I was training as an actuary all, at the time already. I totally understood the value of money and putting a dollar aside when you're 20 is very different than when you're 40. I don't think there are many families, girls and boys, but girls in particular, where that is being said in the house. You're listening to Banking on Girls, the podcast that explores the importance of financial literacy for girls and young women. And I'm your host, Marina Batmiwala. Join me on this journey to uncover insights and inspiration. everyone. My guest today is Martine Fairlong, the President and Chief Executive Officer of Mercer, a $5 billion global leader in redefining the world of work, reshaping retirement and investment outcomes, and unlocking real health and well-being. She also serves as the Vice Chair of Marsh McLennan, Mercer's parent company, the leading global professional services firm in risk strategy and people. She's the mother of three children and grandmother of two. Welcome, Martine. Hello, Marina, and hello, everyone. Thank you for inviting me here. Martine, you've had the chance to work in so many countries, in Canada, the United States, the United Kingdom, and you were recently at the World Economic Forum in Davos, and obviously climate change was a huge topic there. But what do you see as the big issues facing women around the world? Interestingly, climate change took a bit of a backseat to geopolitics this year and also generative AI which was on everybody's lips, from risk to opportunity. So it was interesting. And one item that is dear to my heart, I was able to attend a few conferences and panels on longevity. And I think that's a topic for women in particular. We tend to live longer, a bit longer. We tend to work less years because we have holes in our careers. Or another aspect of it is we need to bring more women in the workforce as our working population shrink and we want to give opportunities to women to finance their longer years as well. And we tend to also earn less and we tend to take more time off for caring of others, whether it's our own kids or parents when they're aging. So it's kind of a perfect storm for women when it comes to earning and taking care of your own financial security. So I think it's still a topic. It's evolved, improved over my career my 41 years in full-time employment, but it's still far from where we need it to be. You mentioned many different countries. Of course, social pressure and stereotypes quite different from one country to the next. So all of that comes to play in terms of the welcoming women in the workplace and making sure they thrive. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned AI, and, and was there any discussion about how women might be impacted more than men when it comes to the impact of AI? Yeah, definitely an angle that we need to keep in mind. But a lot of women are, are good or bad. I think we need more balance, but are employed in the service sector. 
which I don't think is necessarily more impacted, although I think generative AI will in the end change all jobs. But we're looking right now more and more so at white collar type of jobs. So I think men and women impacted the same at that level. But it's always a watch out when technology comes in and are you creating different cohorts or different groups of people? I think what's more at risk, if you ask me right now, for women is the remote working and flexible working elements. We need to be very modern, agile, and look at how we unlock the power of everyone. We know through surveys that women in particular, young parents, but more so women with young children at home, tend to favor flexible working more. And we don't want them to become invisible again by not being present in the office. So there's there's a watch out there and how we are going to organize ourselves around performance management, promotion, inclusion of this flexible workforce. So I... More so than AI, I think at this point, flexible working is a problem. Flexible working in itself is not a problem. I think it's it, we need to adapt to it. I think it's it will not go away, but we just need to watch out the unintended consequences. Yeah, and I think you know everything that's happening right now, all the conversations is, I think that's what it is. It's adapting to what's happened and how to adapt to the future. It is. I mean, there's more, as I said, I've seen an evolution. There's way more models out there now of women working. There's not enough support, but there's more support than before. And depending on, we tend to over-index on service industry or white collar workers, but I'm also, I've also been very involved with helping women access higher education better education so that you know education is a key to get the better jobs and and that's also another element in the puzzle that we need to continue focusing on in particular in in remote places i remember listening to one of your podcasts i think one of your invitee had done some work i remember well in africa i've done some work in terms of helping young girls continue their secondary education, so in their teenage years. And when you change the life of one woman in these villages, you change the whole village life because they come back with trade skills or finance skills, mathematical skills, and delay they delay having babies and marry, getting married. And it just changes the dynamic of a place and changes the society in which you live or the community. Well, that's a great segue into the next question I want to ask you. And and you talk about education. One of the themes in my podcast is really around math as well, because one of the things I found with having two girls myself is that girls sort of early on tend to have this vocabulary that they don't like math, not all girls. And I've, I've worked really hard to make sure that doesn't happen. But now you are an actuary by profession. You're the first actuary I've had here in the guest chair. Okay. I'd love you to explain to our listeners what an actuary is, because it's honestly one of the hardest things I've found to explain, even though I'm an actuary myself. And the most difficult presentation I've ever done is to my children's first grade class, trying to explain to them what an actuary does. Yeah, well, I guess saying that's the coolest job in the world doesn't suffice. (laughs) need a bit more particulars than that. Well, the one way that I've said it is is that we're accounting accountants for the future. We report on potential outcomes based on financials, economics, mathematic models of what could happen 
in the future from a financials point of view. And when you think about that that way, it's scenario planning, it's realm of possibilities, applying expertise and knowledge of the economics and of the mathematics in the finance world. Does that help? That's a great explanation. And, you know, you've used these professional skills. So you're saying accountant for the future, but you're using your professional skills now really to shape the world at a global level. You know, what's going on? We talked about mathematical skills and we talked about forecasting, but people Mm -hmm. also talk about soft skills distinct from technical skills, but how have these all come to play in your journey? Because I think that's a really important story for women and girls to hear. Yes, and I'll tell you the training of an actuary, that is, there's a range of a potential outcome. You know, we live in the world of probabilities. We look at patterns and establish a realm of potential or possible scenarios out there. For an actuary, there's never an exact answer. There's a possibility of answers. (laughs) And that has come, well, two things for me in my role as a CEO, in particular in the recent years, when you think of COVID, for example, when we had to navigate through tons of uncertainty as to the next week, let alone the next month, let alone the next year, scenario planning, the actual science gave me all the tools. My training, my work as an actuary has given me those tools to say, and I I kept saying to my team, we have cards in our hands and we need to understand when we play them. It's a scenario thing of saying, if this happens, then I know this is the realm of possibilities. It could go to this end of the range, to this other end of the range, but to not be afraid of uncertainty, to not be afraid of gray zones and knowing life doesn't always pan out the way that you've planned it has been very helpful in time of crisis to adapt and be agile. It's interesting that way because you think an actuary is a professional, that technical expert. But I think if you look at the training of an actuary, it's actually to be very comfortable in ambiguity and uncertainty because that's what we're trying to put our arms around and put some outcomes around. That's one. And of course, the training, finance, mathematics, just when you manage $5.7 billion of business around 40-something countries, to be able to be quickly comprehending the numbers that you're seeing and the connection between the numbers has been very helpful. I mean, soft skills are massively useful as well and important, but you're asking about the actor and the training and the basics and how it serves. I think for me, it's been a good way into this leadership role. Yeah, that's really good to hear because sometimes people do get pigeonholed into either a technical role or a possibly a leadership role. So, Yeah, you need to take the bigger picture. You need to take a little bit of a, a detachment and look at what's happening and how you can make sense of it, because that's part of the role of a leader as well, in particular in time of crisis, but even in calmer times, if ever we were, we are to see them again one day. But you look at, you're trying to make sense for your business and your people, your colleagues, to what's your strategy, where are you going, what's the objective, the goal, the mission that we have, and then assemble the right pieces to that puzzle through bring people along on that journey. But this notion of trying to make sense of what's going on around you and how we can be successful through thick or thin is part of the role. And here you're going on the scenario planning, the understanding of finance and economy, but you're going into the soft skills as well 
intuitive, what people understand, where they're starting, what's the culture here. So the soft skills of prioritizing, understanding client needs, empathy, and blending that with economics, which has been my brand a little bit, diffusing diffusing of both gets you to the maximum outcome. I It's probably as old as the world as a concept, but it's that hard and soft skill blended well together because you need both. For people listening, choosing this career as an actuary for a woman is not that typical. So what were your early influences in choosing this profession? Yeah, and I hope it is more and more typical. <laughs> it's been a while since I've checked the entry, you know, the attendance level for actual science. But my father was an engineer. My my parents, three siblings, two girls, one boy. We were the expectation for all three of us were similar. There was no so I've I've always called that luck, <laughs> and I was very good in math in school and. I think it was valued by my parents, honestly. And when I came in first in the math test and beat all the boys in the class, my parents were proud of me and saying it was kind of expected, not expected that I would be, but not a surprise that I could be. I think that's the nuance I would want to bring. It was not, oh, it was not for a girl. You know, it was just, you're good in math, use that skill. And we're proud of you. And my sister might not have been as good as Matt, but she was good at, she was way better than me in any sport and more social as well. So I think how parents see you is important so that they see the open horizons for what you can achieve and understand your strength and help you through. I've been lucky that way. Yeah. And I think your parents not having any limitations is, is the main thing. It's the main thing or specific expectation for you this way or that way, particularly as it comes to you being a girl. And not everybody had that luxury. I I totally get it. So how do you create it for yourself? How do you create that space for yourself? And I think it's recognizing, and I speak very often about knowing yourself well. We're not good at everything. We're good at a few. All of us are good at a few things for sure. So what is your strength? How can you improve on the places where you don't find yourself as comfortable? How do you you know, give yourself a chance, basically, and not believe what's being told about you too, too much? I mean, take in some, but then measure it. You take it in a measured fashion. Right. Now, at the beginning, you mentioned the challenges that women face in terms of longevity, living many years after retirement, unequal career trajectories. All these things add up to women being very important for women to understand money and how to build, retain wealth over their lifetime. So what were your early influences when it came to thinking about money? Was that something you talked about in the home as a child? No, not much. But actually, I remember vividly, I was probably 11, 12, asking my father if we were rich. (laughs) And we were well-off, middle-class type. Are we rich? And his answer was basically, look around you. Is there love? Is there care for each other? And I said, yes. And he said, then we're very rich. So that was the extent of talking money at home. <laughs> but that being said, they did a few very practical things. When we came in the teenage year or even going to uni, I remember my dad said, okay, well, we now have to have a budget and how much you think you'll need, this and that. And you were 
expected to live within the means of what you had agreed with them at the onset and to work to fund that and help go forward, not to the point of neglecting your studies, but a good balance. So to the extent that we talked about money, it was more practical, pragmatic about how do you deal with money? How do you manage money? That was the one thing. And one conversation ever, and I've, I've tried to reproduce that from my kids. I'll come back to that. But I remember when I took my first job, permanent job, my father said, you need to learn to live with 90% of what you earn, put 10% away all your life, and you'll be fine. Learn to live with 90%. Like that was the thing. No matter how much they'll give you, and no matter what, they just learn that and save. So for an actuary, of course, I was training as an actuary all at the time already. I totally understood the value of money and putting a dollar aside when you're 20 is very different than when you're 40. I don't think there are many families, girls and boys, but girls in particular, where that is being said in the house. I think you're exactly spot on there. You said that really you didn't talk about money much, but what I'm learning through this podcast is that money conversations are not always just about the dollars, right? They're about the values. So living within your means, going out to work, consistently saving from a young age. And so those were really important lessons that you were given that perhaps many people don't get. Is there anything you wish you knew when you were younger about money and finances that you know now? (laughs) Even with my father's advice, I'd say the power of saved money early on is misunderstood by the youth, including the young actuary in me that was told by my dad to live within my 90% base income. It's interesting because I've had those same conversations with my kids, although my son has reproached me recently that I might not have had it as clearly with him as I've had with my two girls, which is interesting in itself, (laughs) isn't it? I need to reflect on that. But there's a financial column in the newspaper I read. It comes in on the Sundays every week for it's been it's been going on for a few months. And I find myself forwarding this to my kids and, and son-in-law right now about the power of money early on and what do you really need? Because living within your means, we can probably create a lot of means <laughs> or needs. And Back to your point about value and looking around you, is there love, is there care that my father's taught me as the first value is a good reminder of. And when you pair that up with financial planning, it's interesting. I think you get to, okay, what living within my means, but what are my needs? You know, when we say, what do I need? What makes me happy? What will make me the person I want to be in five years and 10 years and doing a little bit of that kind of a projection. Is it three lattes a day from the nearest coffee or is it put that in a piggy bank so that I can do something else with that kind of money? So the power of little things in the everyday makes you happier than those little things. It's a balance, but I think I would have loved to know that earlier. Is that that was your question? Yes, (laughs) yes. That's probably why I'm pushing those articles to my kids. Yes. <laughs> I want you to know it earlier than I. Right. It's better someone else tells them than you sometimes, right? Yeah, so. Well, that's true too. <laughs> <laughs> this column is written by quite a young person, like maybe early 40s or late 30s. I'm thinking uh, maybe it's resonating more with them. <laughs> right. So you talked a bit about how you're helping your own kids understand these issues. How have you raised your own goals from a young age now, presumably, you know, they have their own children. 
but from a young age, how did you raise them when it came to money and finances to prepare them? And I, I have two girls and one boy, and I would say I hope that if you ask them, I, we've treated them the same, the same way I've, I have appreciated my parents not setting boundaries or specific expectation for us, for me. And so one thing that we've done is much earlier than my dad did, actually, with my parents who set me on a budget later, like at uni time. I set my kids on a budget quite young as teenagers. Two things we've done. One that is I was seeing other families do it and I said, I'm not doing this, like paying for course. No, you're part of this family. You contribute. We're all in this together. We all have two legs to, well, we're looking with that way. <laughs> we have two legs, two arms. We can all do to contribute to the family life. But so never paid for, for course. But I we set a budget early, very young teenagers, so that they wouldn't come in and ask for money for this, money, cinema magazines at the time I'm old <laughs> my kids still bought paper magazines but all kinds of things they needed and even clothes so we said big items coats boots okay we take care of otherwise when you're 15 16 and a girl and you want that pair of jeans and you have that costing an arm and a leg but your budget for clothes is x it's up to you to decide whether you spend it on this or you can buy four or five items with it for the season. So we earlier on in what we thought was a education, but also supporting, but also not begging, but also being responsible, sat down and organized them with some form of budget. And it was quite interesting to see the behaviors of the three of them in a very different way. But I think I could see them now as adults to be very responsible, understanding the value of money better, so I took the lesson that I got and I just carried in a little bit earlier in their lives. And hopefully this is serving them now. I think those are all really great things we've heard other guests say as well. That it's really That's a really successful way of doing things, particularly not tying the allowance to chores in the house yeah. and to kind of resist that temptation to use it as a way to punish or reward, but just as a budget in itself. Yeah. Yeah, you're part of this family. We have some means, so here you go, and this is yours to. And we would sit there with them and say, "What do you think?" And behaviorally, it was quite interesting. You had the one who said, "I need to go to cinema three times a week," and the other one who said, "Oh, well, I'll go one once every two months." And you go, "Really? The reality is probably in between, etc." So, but right. it makes them reflect on how do they spend the money without being obsessive about it. So we kept the big items out of there. Of course, the family holidays and stuff, like everything was out of there. But yeah, and then I, I did give them the 90% advice. So I think my eldest followed it. She's also an engineer. My father was an engineer. So maybe something in the brain there. <laughs> I'm not sure the other two. Actually, my son is saying that I probably have not said it to him, but he's freelance. So it's probably come around a bit differently for him. But again. I see him managing his freelancing, which is very lumpy, and you have to make sure you pay your taxes and save for that. So I see him doing that very with a lot of accountability, and it's on him and, and clarity, and, and it's interesting. The other thing that I've done with the kids also, and I've done that with the three kids, with it, it's topical for women as well. I think women don't like to speak about their compensation at work, and, and they dread the conversation every year and all of that. And what I've been talking to my daughters, because they're both in employment, uh, an employer, my son is a freelancer, it's a bit different, but say, 
when it comes to time for your performance management or your pay conversation, be prepared. Know your range, maybe the actual thing again, the range of outcome, and know your reaction on the spot. Know if it's right where you thought it would be, a bit above, delighted, a bit below, hmm, perplexed, and maybe I'll come back to you with this. I'm a bit disappointed. So knowing to be upfront and transparent about how you think this is fairly representing what you brought as a, your contribution. But having that scenario planned ahead of time makes you better prepared to have that conversation in a calm and constructive way with your boss. My daughters always call me now a couple of weeks before we think about, okay, what have they done? What have they learned? Where are they now? They do their little range. And it's one way because we talked about our women. I've done so much research on how women approach finance. And I know you, through this podcast and many other things you've done, women by design are just a little bit less confident in their skills. And they're less confident across so many things, but finance in particular. And when they start investing, they very often will get quite strong returns because they do it thoughtfully and they don't churn their portfolio. But Every time you ask a population of colleagues, employees at our clients, you'll always get women saying they're not as good at it, they're not as familiar with it, than the men would say to you. They like to learn with womankind, like they, they like to bring a sister, a, a friend to, and I've, I've seen many clients who do this in their financial education features and their benefit set, letting Family and friends come into these learnings. Women really enjoyed that because they feel more comfortable learning with someone who they think like them or not as good at it. Yes. Yeah. So it's fascinating. It's fascinating because on technical skills around financials, very often, broadly speaking, women are as good. They just don't think they are. There was a study done called the Fearless Girl Study, and it came to exactly this conclusion when it came to stock market participation of women. It was, it was a huge confidence gap. But that was really good advice for your daughters because, again, that's another area where women do tend to feel a bit more anxious about having that conversation on salary. Asking for a raise or justifying why you think yeah. you were expecting something different, at least having the arguments and then the employer will decide what they do with it and you decide what you do with your career if you have a, yeah. a disconnect. But So finally, Martine, you have grandchildren now. We talked about your children. What advice do you have for people raising girls in today's world? Uh, well, treat them the same as boys in a way. <laughs> so that's first thing, raise them all. But be aware of those little voices that can come from elsewhere as well, from the world around them. Give them the confidence to know their value, know their strength, and accept where they may not be as strong and work to it or not. Just Get people around you that can compensate for that. You know, team, the value of teams, the value of, I was reading, we said, we're making progress, but the stereotypes and social pressure are deep. And there's something I hate is then when we say to women, lean in or be different or, because that's not the value we bring. I was meeting a deep expert research, whatever the title in, in London some years ago, she was saying thousands of years of brain wiring of being a carer, not a gatherer or a hunter, has just created our brain in a certain So yes, we can try to change society and change social norms and accept, you know, what's accepted and not. And we can work on that and we need to work on that for full inclusivity, full giving everyone the opportunity. At the same time, recognizing that we bring a certain different way of 
being, thinking, acting, combining things in our head in a slightly different way. And all of us do it differently. The 7 billion humans on earth do it differently. But understanding that that's the value you bring rather than being gendered or pigeonholed or so important, so important. You're your own individual. You bring your own set of experience and values and that makes you unique and that makes you part of that team and bring a different perspective to solving a problem, to to responding to a need at work. That's way more important than trying to mimic. I understand where these women were coming from some years ago. You need to crack through the majority a little bit, but crack it by being yourself and hope that there's good people around you that will recognize it. That's great advice. Martine Ferland, it's been a pleasure to speak to you today. Well, thank you for having me, Marina, and thank you for holding this podcast. It, it is so important. Appreciate it very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Banking on Goals podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to rate the podcast and be sure to hit subscribe or follow so you can receive notifications of new episodes. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and at bankingongoals.com.